Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop, and we always like to begin with the Angelus. Would you like to offer maybe a special intention for our Angelus today? That's a great idea, Kyle. I was thinking, why don't uh, we offer this for our priests? Because this coming Friday is the Feast of St. John Vianney, and he's the patron saint of parish priests. Excellent. So why don't we remember all of our priests today? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, And she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. John Vianney. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Join Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, as he talks about the perseverance of St. John Vianney, the patron of parish priests, as well as the transfiguration and what it means to us today. Then it's on to the Restored Order Movement. Bishop explains what it is and how he feels about it. Afterwards, he answers questions submitted by listeners. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show, call 260-436-9598. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and today we're going to talk a little bit about some feasts that are coming up. We have a memorial of St. John Vianney, and then on Sunday we'll celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration of Our Lord. I love the feasts of the month of August. Yeah. Um, You know, and even the following week, maybe we could talk about Maximilian Kolbe and Edith Stein. But, but, you know, August is a a month with great saints. But, yeah, like this Friday, August 4th, is is the Feast of St. John Vianney, the patron of parish priests. You know, such an outstanding model for our priests. I think of him a lot. He's, you know, as someone to ask for his intercession. His extraordinary life, you know, his zeal is incredible. He's, and he's also a model for our seminarians. You know, he really struggled in the seminary, mm-hmm. especially with Latin. All the classes would have been in Latin. I think he failed some some classes. And I mean, he was an intelligent man, intuitively intelligent, but he had a hard time learning and memorizing things. And I think there's, you know, that could be a struggle for some students. Um, he, was, he was even kicked out at one point of the seminary. <laughs> Doesn't seem like the saint that you would choose for your patron of priests. But 
Is it the overcoming of the adversity that makes him such a great role model? Yeah, he persevered. You know, he persevered. He wasn't ordained until he was 29 years old, but he really persevered. I think he's an example of of tenacity, huh. you know, in his in his work, in his study, his praying. And I think he's an example even for lay people because we all have, you know, there's obstacles we face in our life or limitations that we might have. But, you know, the idea of persevering, and uh, I think he's great. And he just had this desire in his heart to win souls for the good God. Hmm. That was an expression he, he used. That was his desire. So he had this courage. And I think um, when he was ordained and he lived his priestly life and ministry, I mean, it was incredible. That little town of ours in France that was, you know, so few people practicing the faith. It was, um, you know, and, and so we went to this place assigned to a parish that had, um, you know, was very lukewarm or worse in hmm. the faith. And um, he just would sit, sit there for hours and hours hearing confessions. At first, no one came or hardly anyone came. But then it became known that he was a good confessor. It ended up, of course, that thousands came from all over the world, really, yeah. to go to him to confession. And uh, so his devotion to the confessional, to bringing Christ's mercy, um, is also an example for our priests to dedicate time and it takes a lot of energy, too, by the way, yeah. to, to be hearing confessions, especially for hours. It can be very exhausting. And then he also you know, spent a lot of time in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, silent prayer, had, had a beautiful devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So these are like, I would call them kind of like the bedrock for us priests, you mm -hmm. know, devotion to the Eucharist, devotion to the Blessed Mother, and then real uh, self-giving in our ministry especially in the confessional. And also, by the way, preparing homilies. Yeah. Because, you know, John Vianney would, would, would spend a good be, did a bit of time preparing good homilies. Hmm. That's also very important today, our preaching. How long do you think you spend on homilies? I love preparing homilies. I don't, you know, it's one of my favorite things. You know, sometimes ideas come to me really quickly. I'd say most of the time. My problem is I have too much that comes to me and I can't, yeah. I don't want to <laughs> preach too long. Every now and then, the readings, I, I, I struggle hmm. about what to say. But that's pretty rare. Yeah. You know, maybe every few months I might hit a roadblock where I read the readings and, and nothing comes to me. So I have to spend more time. But generally, the opposite's the case. There's a lot of things that, I, that come into my mind. Yeah. You mentioned St. John Vianney being from ours. Yes. Which he's sometimes known as the cure of ours. Cure of ours. What, is, what does that mean? That's, it, you might know the English word curate. And it, it comes from the Latin cura, which means care. So one oh. who has the care of souls. So a curate, usually an associate pastor used to be called the curate, um, but hmm. someone who has care of souls. So in French, cure of ours, it's the same thing. It, it really means uh, a priest. I mean, sometimes they'll just refer to a priest as a cure, but it means care. It has to do with pastoral and spiritual care. Interesting. It's my understanding during his time, there was the French Revolution and there was a lot of persecution of the priests. I think his he lived after, or maybe the French Revolution was when he was still uh, very young. I can't remember the dates. 
But um, but really, it was after the the French Revolution. Really, the, the church was devastated. So it was a time of rebuilding. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, so many priests were killed during the French Revolution. Convents were closed. Religious monasteries taken over by the government. All of that. So the church was pretty much in in great need of of renewal. And he was really one who was at the forefront, even though he was just in this little parish in ours. His example and his renown spread, and I think it helped the, the whole church in France. With him being the patron of our priests, how do you think we can support our priests better? I think one of the things is, well, definitely prayer. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. I would say also uh, patience, because we have to remember priests are human beings. I think when someone is, you know, maybe upset with a priest, it would be good to before writing a letter to the bishop to maybe sit down and talk to the priest, okay. you know, in a, you know, have a good heart-to-heart talk. Yeah. My experience is most of our people just love our priests. But at times, you know, all of us have flaws, mm-hmm. including the bishop. So we need to be patient with each other, too, and are patient with our weaknesses. Sure. And also look for the good. Mm-hmm. That's really important. I mean, I think there's a, something about... Maybe in our culture, sometimes we're always looking for the, you know, the flaws or the negative things. I think we should look for the good. Like if you have, sometimes there's a priest who maybe is not a very good homilist, but maybe he's great when he's devoted to the sick and visiting the the homebound or the sick in hospitals and nursing homes. I mean, priests have different talents, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and I think what we can do is also look for the good and say thank you sometimes, you know, that means a lot. Mm-hmm. On Sunday, we'll celebrate the Transfiguration, which, like a lot of the stories in Scripture, it's it's a fairly short story, but kind of this big deal event where Peter, James, and John are led up on this mountain with Jesus. They see Jesus transfigured. They see Elijah and Moses, who represent the prophets and the law, and so Jesus is the fulfillment of those. And then the cloud comes and says, uh, behold, this is my son or something like that. Yes. Which is actually the same line that we hear at Jesus' baptism, right? Exactly. You're pretty good, Kyle. You know your scriptures. I I, I read up on this a little bit. (laughs) There's one difference in that quote. It ends with, listen to him. Listen to him. Which is kind of interesting. But first of all, why do you think it was Peter, James, and John? Because they were the most, they were the ones who were closest to Jesus. It seems there are other times where you see Jesus just with those three. Uh-huh. Of course, we know John was the beloved disciple sitting next to Jesus at the at the Last Supper, resting his head on on Jesus's breast. But yeah, they were kind of the inner circle. I would say, you know, yeah. maybe we could say Jesus's best friends. What do you think the Transfiguration means to us today? You know, it's a, it's a great mystery. It's a theophany, which means a manifestation of God. When I think about that, and of course, we thanks to St. John Paul II, we reflect on transfiguration more now because it's one of the luminous mysteries mm-hmm. of the rosary. Just to imagine this getting a glimpse of Jesus's divine glory. You know, you can almost imagine what it must have been like to see Jesus radiant. As the scripture says, his clothes became dazzling white just to see this glory. And it wasn't long before Jesus would would be crucified. So 
Our Lord allowed them to have this glimpse of his glory as they were getting ready. And of course, Peter especially, you know, would always be negative when Jesus would talk about going to suffer to suffer and die for us. He didn't want to hear that, and Jesus had to correct him. But for us today, what does the um, uh, transfiguration, I think it also uh, makes us think about how we're on the way to glory, that um, the glory that Jesus manifested at the transfiguration is, um, you know, kind of foreshadows his resurrection, but it also reminds us that that we're called to live in glory with him. Mm. But yet, Jesus had to come down the mountain. Yeah. He had to come down, he took up the cross, um, he suffered and died for us. So I think it's also important for us to see that you know our life is not always a mountaintop experience, <laughs> even our prayer sometimes. Yeah. We have to come down the mountain, we have to walk the way of the cross, but what gives us strength is we know what the end is. Hmm. It's the life of glory, the life of heaven. But I like what you mentioned about what what God the Father said when Jesus was transfigured. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing the Blessed Virgin Mary said to the waiters at the, um, oh. at the wedding feast at Cana. Yeah. Do whatever he tells you. Uh-huh. So the Father, God the Father, is calling us to listen to his son. You know, not just in our, with our ears, but listen to the Lord in our minds, in our hearts. And it's a, a, an obedient listening. To truly listen is then to obey. Mm. You know, it's interesting. Twice a year, we reflect on the transfiguration in the liturgy because every second Sunday of Lent every year, the gospel is of the transfiguration. Oh, okay. Either Matthew, Mark, or Luke's account. And then every August 6th is the Feast of the Transfiguration. By the way, that's the day that Blessed Pope Paul VI died. What a beautiful day to, hmm. um, to pass away is the Feast of the Transfiguration. But I also think of Peter. Peter's one of my favorite characters because we can all relate to Peter in his um, – he's kind of impetuous. And, but but in, in the, even at the Transfiguration, though, he was so excited. He wanted to build three booths. So – uh, that the, that that experience would would continue, that it would stay, but of course it was only to receive a glimpse. But I think we can feel a lot like Peter, you know. Yeah. Um, but Peter was, you know, reluctant about the coming down the mountain uh-huh. and walking the way of the cross. Jesus had to teach him. Well, and something that it's kind of hard for us to put ourselves in that shoes. Like, yes, this is happening. He assumed that. It was going to continue forever. Like we know now that it was just this glimpse. Uh, but then so many things throughout that, that New Testament of them not seeing the full picture yet. Uh, and actually, in some ways, we have a better understanding of theology and faith than uh, our first pope did. You know, not knowing exactly when Pentecost would come or you know, all these different things that were promised, but it has no idea what it's actually going to look like. Right. But we can kind of see that a little bit more in retrospect. Yeah, it's, it's true. Um, and um, it really comes down to faith. When you think about the faith of Peter, we see that you know his faith faltered sometimes. Mm-hmm. In our lives, our faith can falter. It's important that we say that prayer, Lord, increase my faith, because faith is a gift. But we're privileged, as you say, Kyle, that we can see the whole picture. Yeah. 
uh, even though Peter had the privilege of actually being there with Jesus when he walked this earth. Right. But we see the whole picture because the resurrection. Yeah. Which, in a sense, the resurrection of Jesus is the fullest revelation, you know. Yeah. Of, of the truth of uh, about God and the truth about Jesus as the Son of God. All right. Well, coming up, we will talk about the order in which sacraments are received. We'll have a little discussion about that. And then we'll take questions from you here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And one of the topics that has been coming up every once in a while, and we see this a little bit more on the national level, is a movement that has been called the Restored Order movement. And it's, well, maybe let's start with explaining how we do the sacraments in this diocese, what ages and what order we receive, the, most people receive the sacraments. Yeah, I mean, obviously infant baptism. Mm-hmm. So parents should seek to have their child baptized uh, within a few weeks after they're born. Uh, that's really important. The next sacrament that's celebrated is penance before First Communion. So Mm -hmm. at the age of reason, we have First Confession and First Holy Communion, generally second grade. Mm -hmm. And then in our diocese, we have the Sacrament of Confirmation in eighth grade. That's the normal time. Uh, So it's during adolescence. The, The big question about when they speak about restored order, it has to do with the three sacraments of initiation baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So that's the traditional order. That's why they're speaking of restoring the order. Baptism first, confirmation second, Eucharist third. Because the Holy Eucharist is kind of like baptism and confirmation point to the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the fullness of Christian initiation. Okay. So that was really, even in the early church, usually baptism and confirmation were pretty much done together, and they still do it together in the Eastern Catholic churches. As time went on, though, as the centuries unfolded, because bishops usually did the, the baptism and confirmation, well, as the church grew, then you had priests mm-hmm. beginning to do baptisms. And in the West, the bishop only continued to do confirmation. So there was this separation between mm-hmm. baptism and confirmation. But generally, one was still confirmed at a, a very young age. It could be at the age of three or four or five. And then um, the Eucharist would be last. About 100 years ago, that traditional order kind of got, at least in the United States, changed. When Pope St. Pius X lowered the age for First Communion to seven, the age of reason. Uh And again, confirmation was done later, usually around with First Communion, around 10 or after uh, First Communion. Well, now you have this wider separation. So you have First Communion at age seven and confirmation coming later. Because confirmation stayed at the same point and they moved Right. First communion up earlier. Exactly. And so in the United States, that kind of worked, and we're all kind of familiar with that. Uh, You know, I was confirmed in seventh grade. Do you remember what grade you were in, Kyle? Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And um, so we kind of think most people today probably don't even realize that confirmation used to be at a younger age. Mm -hmm. So theologically, there are some who believe that we should go back to the restored order. 
it would also help our relationships with the Orthodox Church and, yeah. you know, to go back to the way it was earlier, baptism, then confirmation, then Eucharist. And I think about 10 dioceses in the United States have gone back to that restored order. But I know at least one of those dioceses, one diocese went back and then it was disastrous oh. and they changed back to having really? confirmation actually in high school. Uh-huh. You'd have to be very careful about it. There'd have to be a lot of catechesis. But I, I'll be honest with you, Kyle, I don't, my, myself, I understand the theological reasons for going back mm-hmm. because it shows that the Eucharist is the summit. It also shows that another thing that's really important is some people think of confirmation as kind of the sacrament of where you're, it's almost like a bar mitzvah where you're becoming an adult in the church. And right. that's, that's not good theology. It's not about becoming an adult, adult in the church. What is confirmation? It's about being strengthened by the Holy Spirit to bear, bear witness to our faith in word and deed. And, and some also, there's another skewed uh, view about confirmation which which kind of sees confirmation as like something you earn. You know, you do service projects, right. you do this and that. Well, we should never think of a sacrament as something we earn. Mm-hmm. It's it's a gift from God. So we shouldn't have the idea we have to do all these homework assignments in order to get confirmed. That's not a really good thing. Uh, sacraments are free. They're yeah. free gifts from God. Now, one has to be properly prepared, properly disposed, all of those things, so that one re- when one receives a sacrament, one receives it fruitfully. Now, having said all of that, and I understand the reasons for those who push for the restored order, I find that pastorally speaking, it really works well the mm-hmm. way we do it in our diocese and in most dioceses in the United States. Right. Now, if Rome came down and said, we have to go back to the restored order, I'd certainly do it gladly. But on a pastoral level, it seems that the preparation, if we were doing confirmation, let's say at age seven, and then shortly after followed by first communion, that's how do you do the proper catechesis? Mm -hmm. I think it would be lost. And it'd be interesting to see those 10 dioceses that do the restored order how their catechesis is, but they say it's one thing to get away from the idea that one's kind of graduating from religious education when one is confirmed right. in eighth grade, for example. Well, I always, I often say at, com- at confirmation masses that I have, this isn't your graduation from religious education. Your religious education is just beginning. Right. I'll say that. So th- that's another erroneous notion. But I think that having it in eighth grade, we're, we're able to do two years of formation mm-hmm. and preparation, which I think is wonderful. And it's a time in a, in a young person's life where that focus on the faith and preparation for confirmation, I think is, is, uh, has been spiritually helpful to young people because it has them thinking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, has them thinking about their vocation mm-hmm. as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, and even their state and life vocation later. So I see a lot of pastoral reasons that that I like it being in eighth grade. I have no intentions here of changing it to the restored order. And so confirmation has to happen after the age of reason? That's correct. So in you, the Western, we, we in the Latin church. Infant confirmation. No, but the Eastern Catholic churches do. Okay. So it's not like something that's wrong. That's okay. not wrong. 
Uh, and actually, that's how it was done, as I said, at the beginning, because the bishops did the, uh-huh. the baptism, and then they would anoint with and, and do the confirmation. Um, so is it up to the individual bishop? No, in the Western Church, we in, in the Code of Canon Law, it says age of reason. Okay. But after the age of reason, then it's up to the local bishop. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, in the United States, the church said that it was up to local Episcopal conferences. Okay. So our United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the bishops were all over the place <laughs> on the age of confirmation. As a matter of fact, there have been doctoral dissertations written on this. It's one really? of those highly debated topics. So the bishops really couldn't come to a consensus. So they said, well, in the United States, it can be between, I think, age seven and 18. Okay. So it's yeah, quite wide. When I was in the Lafayette Diocese, it was 10th grade. Okay, was it? At uh, the time, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, interesting. So there's there's not necessarily a right or a wrong way to do it. Right. The church allows both. I mean, might the church decide or the Pope say, listen, we're going to restore the order. And he could make that decision and put uh-huh. it in legislation. But he hasn't done that. Uh-huh. So at this point, we have that freedom regarding the age of confirmation. All right. Well, if you have questions for Bishop Rhodes, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And coming up, we'll ask some questions submitted by our listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This is Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we would like to take some time to answer questions that were submitted by listeners. You can do that by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Uh, we also have little boxes at the radio station that you can write your, na- your questions down and submit them there. And one of the questions, actually, we have three of them that came from Kathy Fetch over at St. Vincent's in Fort Wayne. She said, when is reconciliation not needed prior to First Communion? She gets this question a lot from parents of children with autism or other disabilities who think a nonverbal child can't receive Holy Communion if they can't go to confession. Well, thanks, Kathy, for this question. This is a a very important question, actually. Last month at our meeting of the U.S. bishops in Indianapolis, we just passed a revision of our guidelines for sacraments for those with disabilities. So this is a really important question, and it's really important that we be conscious of those with disabilities and especially, you know, giving the church's ministry and help and service, especially to parents of disabled children, et cetera, so that they can be fully included in the life of the church, including the sacramental life, Mm -hmm. if possible. I would say, first of all, we have to remember the general norm. The norm is confession before First Holy Communion. I think most Catholics know that's the norm. And I think what uh, some struggle with is, what about children who for whom this is really difficult, especially those with maybe intellectual disabilities or some kind of developmental disability. I think it's important to realize, first of all, in order to go to confession, one has to have the use of reason. Uh So you have to see, okay, how severe, how profound is the disability? Because if it's so profound, it's even possible that one can't commit a mortal sin. So so confession isn't even necessary. Right, Right, exactly. And um, nor would one even be able to have minimal contrition if the disability is that severe. Mm -hmm. So you have to see that first of all. But I think 
the children that Kathy's probably referring to are children who do have a sense, at least a consciousness of sins committed. And that's my experience too. Also, they would need to have some sense of sorrow for those sins. Now, the thing is, some of these children with disabilities may not be able to describe their sins precisely in words. Mm -hmm. I think Kathy mentioned a nonverbal child. Right. Now, even if they can't maybe precisely describe the sin in words, they could still receive absolution. There might be some way that they can express, even if not in words. And I think this is where the parents could be helpful because they communicate with the child or mm -hmm. maybe a, a specialist in this area that could help and say, okay, this is how this child is able to make a confession, even though they may not be able to use words. Mm -hmm. So you have to look because there's a whole spectrum of these kinds of disabilities. You think about autism spectrum disorder. Yeah. Another example would be someone who's had a traumatic brain injury. There can be gestures, for example, for someone who's nonverbal or has minimal verbal communication. Uh, they can express repentance, perhaps through gestures, but they should be allowed. This is the main point. They should be allowed to make their confession using the communication system with which they're most fluent. Okay. So you have to say, okay, what are the options here? Now, if all the options are exhausted, you know, then it, I, it's still okay to receive first Holy communion mm -hmm. without prior reconciliation. But you know, you have to try your best. You have to look at all the options. I think about the deaf. The deaf can make their confession in writing or with an electronic device. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to be really careful because that should be destroyed after the confession so you protect the seal. Sure. Now, the connection to First Communion, really important. Again, First Communion is usually at the age of discretion, about seven years old. Again, you have to have that use of reason and be properly disposed. And... The child needs to have sufficient knowledge of what they're receiving. Now, someone with an intellectual or developmental disability must at least be able to distinguish the body of Christ from ordinary food, Okay. even if they can't express that verbally. For example, they would know that this is something holy. Mm -hmm. It really becomes the decision, I think, of, of the parents primarily to decide when and if the child is ready. Sometimes though, it may need to be, first communion may need to be delayed. And this isn't just with those with disabilities, but if a child, for example, doesn't have the minimal knowledge of what it is, also if they're, they don't have the proper reverence. So again, I think these are, you know, each specific case mm -hmm. has to be looked at. Does there have to be any kind of a response to, I know like whenever we say this is the body of Christ, we're supposed to respond with amen. Not everybody does this loudly or clearly, um, but is there some kind of an acknowledgement, a reception, a, a response necessary for reception, or can it be implied if-, if It can be implied. Yeah. If someone's nonverbal, certainly. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be a bow at the head, or maybe they're not even able to do that, but- when I give Holy Communion to deaf people, mm -hmm. sometimes they do say amen, or yeah. sometimes they'll they'll sign amen. Okay. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. And would most parish priests be able to field these questions, or would there be a specialist in the diocese that they could consult with in, in rare cases? I think probably most priests uh, have enough uh, knowledge about this, but, but we have a, 
in the diocese, I mean, if people have questions, they can consult either Mary Glowoski, who, who works with our Committee for Those with Disabilities, mm-hmm. or consult Carl Lesh in the religious education area. He's the Secretary for Catholic Education. Okay. So some of these more difficult cases, yeah, people are free to come and get the advice of the bishops. But now we have these guidelines that should be helpful to everybody. Are those available online or somewhere to the public? Yes, I think they're online already. It, they haven't been printed yet, but I think they're supposed to be in printed form. Okay. Kathy also asked another question. She said, what are good reasons to delay reception of First Communion? Parents sometimes think their child is too emotionally immature and therefore spiritually immature. On the other hand, could the child's yearning for the sacrament trump the parent's wishes to wait? No, we have to respect the will of the parents in this and their judgment. Now, if the priest or the catechist think this is unwise they can talk to the parents and Mm -hmm. say listen we we think you know we don't want to deny at this point or delay your child receiving the grace of the eucharist and we think they're mature enough that would enter into a dialogue but in the end it is really the parents um, decision i would say you know she asked what are good reasons to delay Mm -hmm. if they don't have that basic sufficient knowledge then I think that this is the body of Christ. This is really Jesus. It's not ordinary bread. Mm-hmm. It's not ordinary wine. If they're not able to understand that, then delay would be the right thing to do. Another thing, as I mentioned, if they don't have the proper reverence. If you know, they talk about maturity. Well, if you think a child is maybe so emotionally immature that they might spit the host out, or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it would seem to me that would be a good reason to delay. But I think most of the time these things can be worked out and a child can be uh, prepared even if they have some emotional issues that they're dealing with um, and might need to have some professional help with that. This is from Kathy again. Do you have any advice for pastors or catechists who would like to better serve parents who wish to delay sacraments? I would say... You just have to make sure that if you have children with special needs in your parish, and I say this to pastors, priests, catechists, we need we have an obligation to make sure that we provide the proper preparation. Mm-hmm. Maybe a couple of parishes work together on it. I mean, generally you like to do it with the other children, but there might need to be someone there who does some extra work with the disabled child. And if there need to be accommodations, we need to make those accommodations for those with disabilities. Again, I, I think um, as far as respecting parents who wish to delay, even if the catechist or the priest disagrees, they need to respect the parent's decision. You know, as I said, they can try to explain to parents if, if they think the child is adequately prepared. But in the end, it's the parent's decision. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And coming up, we'll have some more questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we have some more questions submitted by our listeners This one is, what is the proper way to receive the Eucharist? How do you feel about kneeling or receiving in the hand versus receiving on the tongue? Well, first of all, 
I think the most important thing is being in the state of grace. Hmm. That just has to have priority, a good examination of conscience. We have to have the proper disposition, the interior disposition to receive communion worthily. Whether one receives on the tongue or in the hand, they're both legitimate, both allowed by the church. And I think it's really important that we respect the, the liberty of the recipient. But one needs to have reverence, whether they receive on the tongue or in the hand. You know, that bow of the head, we should try not to forget before we receive the Eucharist. Another thing that I think is, is disrespectful, I don't know that the recipient is intentionally disrespectful, but there are sometimes in communion lines, not often, but, but not that infrequent either. I mean, it happens, maybe I experience it every few weeks where someone just grabs the host. In other words, they don't receive it mm. in the hand like they're supposed to with, you know, like a, a throne right. where you have the right hand under the left hand and you reverently uh, receive. There's some people when the priest holds the host up, they just take it. Yeah. That's not reverent. And I don't know, I, I don't think people who do that are necessarily intentionally being irreverent somewhere they didn't learn it or sure. maybe they haven't been coming to church and they just so i think that's uh i don't have any preferences in that i mean the norm as far as communion in the hand or or uh, on the tongue the important thing is the reverence being in the state of grace regarding the norm we you know the norm is to stand when we receive holy communion but a person who kneels should not be denied communion. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are people who choose to kneel to receive, uh, and that's not prohibited. With the the hand versus the tongue reception, does that vary where you are? Because some places you go, maybe over in Europe or Latin America or something like that, it will be everybody is receiving on the tongue. In that case, uh, is it mandatory there, or is it still optional, but maybe you yeah, want to fit in with the norm? Yeah, I think it depends on the... I think it depends. I don't remember if it was by the Episcopal Conference of a country or by a diocese. But I remember we had communion in the hand in the United States before they did in Italy. And then they had it in Italy before they had it at the Vatican. Okay. So I think it must be by country. Okay. Yeah. Kathleen Fogarty from St. Vincent's Fort Wayne wrote in a question, who hears a bishop's confession? And can you offer tips for going to confession? Oh, thanks for those questions, Kathleen. Well, any priest can hear a bishop's confession. You don't uh, have to go up the, no, the ladder. No, no, <laughs> you, no, you just go to any priest. You know, I, I'm more comfortable going to a priest that's not under me here in the diocese yeah. for obvious reasons. But, but I'd say, you know, as far as tips for going to confession, you know, good examination of conscience is essential. I mean, I think it's good to make an integral confession uh, that you really don't just do it without good prior reflection since your last confession. Mm -hmm. I love before I go to confession to pray Psalm 51 because it gives me, it's the miserere Psalm. It's very beautiful. It's a prayer of repentance. Hmm. And to me, to pray that slowly, to recite that slowly, kind of gets me in the right frame of mind before I go to confession. So I think it is good to spend some time in prayer before going into the confessional. Another thing is I think it's important to pray after, not just to rush out. Of course, if you're given a prayer for your penance, it's kind of nice. But I think also to spend a little time in giving thanks to God for his mercy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, these are just little things, but just personally, it helps me. Another tip I would give is, is to make it a regular part of one's spiritual life, you know. And I think that it's just so good, uh, uh, such a great means for us to, to grow in holiness is to recognize our need for God's forgiveness and, and to then really express that sorrow by going to confession. Of course, we're obliged to when we've committed a mortal sin. Mm-hmm. But even without mortal sin, confession, you still receive the graces um, from after you know confessing venial sins. Uh, we receive an increase in God's grace to help us to grow. Do you get to hear confessions very often as a bishop? Occasionally, not as much as as a priest. Yeah, yeah as a priest, it was you know every week. Here, it's you know sometimes at penance services or when we have this light is on for you. So when there's opportunities, yeah, I like to. As somebody hearing confessions, do you prefer to be behind a screen or do you prefer face-to-face? Well, it's the person's option. I'm more comfortable when they're behind the screen, and that's because, I don't know, I, I think I feel you know more focused, that huh. I'm not distracted by looking at the person. But then there are times where people really, they feel more comfortable going face-to-face, and that's what's most important, okay. what makes them most, most comfortable. I can just focus better when I'm just listening. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a common mistake that people make when going to confession? Let me see. I don't know. I mean, I think some people will struggle and need a little help. They might forget the act of contrition, especially if it's been a while since they've been to confession. Some may need a little help in the examination of conscience part of it, where, you know, I recommend everybody think about, you know, look at each of the Ten Commandments and just think about one's life. I also think it's really important is to, when one makes an examination of conscience, to think about their state in life. How are they, especially if they're married, how am I as a husband, as a father, mm-hmm. or as a wife or and a mother? Am I really, because that's the way yeah. for their salvation. Like I have to look, when I go to confession, I look at my, my vocation as a bishop, and I, I, I have to examine myself, okay, how am I serving God's people? You know, am I really loving them as as much as I should? Or where have I failed? Where have I not had the patience, for example, in in dealing with someone or been lax in any way in my obligations as a bishop? All right. One last question uh, from an anonymous writer says, do you work seven days a week and what do you do during your time off? You know what? I um, it's not good, but I'll be honest. I do work probably seven days a week. It's not really as healthy. I need to, you know, priests are entitled to one day off a week, and I really encourage and get on my priests uh-huh. that they should take their day off because we all need to be refreshed. I'm not the best person. I'm not really practicing what I preach. I'll make that confession. Do you have uh, a day? I, I do get some scheduled as a day off. No, no, no. But I mean, I, it's not like I never take a day off. Like if I can get, I might go a month or two, but then take maybe two or three days. Mm-hmm. You know, I might do that. I still have a hard time managing my calendar, to be honest. But I do think you know the Lord gave us Sunday as a day of rest. It's important. Um, but how, I mean, I can't take Sundays off. <laughs> you know, I, I go around the diocese. I have many commitments. And if you're taking a two days off, what are you going to do? Oh man, I'd love to get. You know what I do if I lo- if I get a couple days off? I, I like to get exercise and I like uh-huh. to read. Uh-huh. 
I mean, those two things I miss. I, I do like getting exercise, even riding a bike, hiking. Um, I love to read. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of great information for us. And we always like to end with a, an Episcopal blessing. Sure. So would you mind? The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us every Wednesday at noon for Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes with a special encore presentation on Saturdays at 11 a.m. On the next show, Bishop will discuss the great saints of World War II, just war theory, and answer questions submitted by listeners. Check out past episodes of Truth in Charity by downloading the Redeemer Radio app to your smartphone or tablet, or by visiting RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you can submit questions for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show. Thanks to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting this program.